0: Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Before even hitting record, I just wasted about a half an hour searching for new intro music, something I've been meaning to do for a while, so I was scouring my database of you know free Apple loops. I didn't find anything uh, yet that really grabbed me. I almost went with this kind of German electronic <laughs> music, but uh, anyway, I don't know. So no introduction music this week, which I don't think I've done in a while anyway. Uh, But I don't want to waste too much time talking about that. Uh, And I also just wanted to quickly mention before we start that I know it's been a while, but I finally uploaded some new Patreon bonus content. It's my unscripted take on the whole Russell Brand controversy, And characteristically, it ended up being significantly longer than I had initially uh, expected or intended. My intention was to do a maybe 50-minute long little bonus episode, but it ended up being over half an hour. So if you're a Patreon supporter and you weren't notified, or if you're thinking about becoming a Patreon supporter, that bonus episode is there if you want to check it out. And there's something I meant to bring up in that bonus episode, but it slipped my mind. Once again, it was unscripted. In it, I'm pretty critical of Russell Brand, and I criticize people for the mental gymnastics they've engaged in, in my opinion, uh, to defend him, and the seeming lack of sympathy or even hostility towards the alleged victims. But that being said, I have to say I'm somewhat torn over YouTube's decision to demonetize his channel before he's had his day in court. And I say I'm torn because on the one hand, it's a private company and it's their platform. And as far as I'm aware, they have the right to grant monetization or take it away as they see fit. But just because you have the right to do something doesn't necessarily mean it is right, you know, or the right thing to do. I don't know his personal finances, but I imagine after decades of being a successful celebrity, Russell Brand is probably all right money-wise, Although you never know, some celebrities tend to piss their fortunes away by living too extravagantly, pardon my language by the way, and he really does seem to push pretty hard for people to financially support his channel or his content, which makes you wonder maybe his financial situation is worse than you might expect. But I think it's kind of a scary precedent and it makes me worry about smaller creators who maybe don't have much of a financial safety net or for whom YouTube is their main source of income. If someone hurls an allegation at them, can they suddenly lose their livelihood overnight? And to be honest, YouTube already has a habit of suddenly demonetizing people. A few years ago, I was suddenly demonetized. Their reason, in my case, was supposedly due to quote-unquote reuse content. And it may have been during one of, um the so-called adpocalypses, and they were trying to supposedly, am I using supposedly too much? And eh, Drink up. Uh, they were supposedly trying to tidy up the platform by getting rid of redundant content, and I had some atheist debate clips, little clips from real time with Bill Maher, which in fairness, yeah, those clips weren't my intellectual property, so fair's fair, but I think demonetizing my whole channel was pretty heavy-handed. They should have just requested that I take the clips down, but I reached out to YouTube on Twitter and I said, hey, the majority of my channel consists of episodes of my own original podcast, you know, I'm a content creator, and fortunately they took mercy on me and turned my monetization back on almost immediately. I know there's some people who will argue, hey, this doesn't, you know, and this doesn't apply to me. I make hardly anything off of YouTube. Uh, if I'm lucky, I earn about a hundred bucks every few months. Uh, you have to accumulate a hundred in ad revenue before they'll grant you a payout. But some people will say of people who make a living off of YouTube and then complain when they get demonetized, hey, tough, it's your fault for putting all your eggs in the YouTube basket when you know they reserve the right to demonetize or deplatform you at any time. I think that's a pretty hard-hearted approach, and I don't think it's that simple. We live in a time when more and more people are turning to content creation as a mode of income. And I think there is an ethical discussion to be had concerning when it is or isn't appropriate for a company to de-platform or demonetize someone. But I'm digressing as usual. Let's get on with the show. So this is going to be a topical/slash news story episode. So first up, we have a video of a shirtless Andrew Tate hanging out with his brother and complaining about the amazing atheist. Very strange. And then we have TJ's response. And for context, this video is an excerpt from the live show TJ does with his brother and Paul's ego. I believe they call it Onion Nuggets. And it's a kind of spinoff of their Deep Fat Fried podcast. But here's the clip. How are you an amazing atheist? No, have you seen him? No, but I haven't even seen him, but I'm just going to apply logic to this. To To be amazing. It's very hard to be amazing for just not believing in something how are you amazing when god doesn't love you maybe i'm well, amazing because i don't need god's love maybe i'm amazing because even if there was a god i would still tell him to fuck off well also <laughs> it, 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 a lot of times it's said that god loves everyone even if they don't believe in him that's not even true right that's true too i guess but uh i don't even care i don't want his love he can shove it up his ass fuck god hail satan amen you make an enemy of the most powerful force Right, because I'm not a pussy like you that fucking quivers mean, you, in you fear know, of it. You couldn't even fathom it with your human mind. It can't even be understood. You make an enemy of that force, and you think that makes you amazing? I made an enemy of the most powerful force in existence, and I'm just kind of sitting here with a normal heart rate, bro. Classic TJ. I love it. And I have a hard time reading Andrew Tate. Is he being serious? Is he being facetious? Is it all just a put on? I don't know. But he's definitely trying to discredit or take TJ down a peg, and yet strangely by painting TJ as someone who's willing to oppose or stand up against the most powerful being in existence, he inadvertently kind of makes him sound like a badass, like some epic Byronic hero who's not afraid to take on or challenge the creator of the universe. And I'm not saying I view TJ as some larger-than-life hero. He's just a content creator I like, but you get my point. And TJ's claim or stance that even if God were real, he would still tell him off or refuse to worship him, that kind of reminds me of Matt Dillahunty's stance. I think he says something similar. And Dillahunty used to rub me the wrong way with the way he tends to yell at callers, But I have to admit, I've been watching a lot of The Line recently, and I'm kind of warming up to him. But in the case of Dillahunty, at least, and probably also for TJ, although TJ also just likes being edgy sometimes, (laughs) refusing to worship God, even if he were proven to exist, would be a matter of principle based on taking moral exception to or with the way this supposed supreme being conducts itself. To be honest, I don't know if I'd have the strength or integrity to stand up to a Supreme Being. Kind of reminds me of Jesse Custer from the TV show or comic Preacher, where God ends up biting the eye out of Jesse's head for daring to challenge or disrespect him. But I admire and applaud TJ's defiant Luciferian spirit. Rats off to you. And I think Andrew Tate was raised Christian, was an atheist for a time, and is now Muslim, if I'm not mistaken. While I was researching this episode earlier, I came across a clip of him claiming to have evidence for God's existence His quote unquote evidence is, and I'm paraphrasing, that there's so much evil in the world and since there must always be an equal and opposite reaction, good or God must exist too. His other reason was that since the concept of God exists, God must exist in some form, that even if God is only a concept, that concept influences people, so he still exist or is still real in a sense. Shades of Jordan Peterson which is interesting seeing as I think Tate used to be involved with uh, Peterson's daughter, Michaela. To me, saying God exists because God as a concept impacts or influences people, it is very Petersonian, and it's just figurative rhetoric or semantic game, for me at least. Unless you're going for a Neil Gaiman, is it Gaiman or Gaiman? American Gods kind of thing, where gods are thought forms people can think or believe into existence, which I don't believe in at all, but I think it's a very cool, thought-provoking idea. And I don't necessarily think that's what Tate is going for. I'm just being kind of sarcastic or cheeky in my own monotone, sedated way. Uh, And the existence of evil being proof of God, well, the word evil has spiritual connotations, but by evil you mean man's inhumanity to man, suffering, the vagaries of existence, all the adversity and challenges of this world. uh, That's nothing for me that can't be chalked up to being a finite creature with a fleeting lifespan, members of a social species of highly evolved self-aware ape stuck on a semi-hostile planet. Planet rife with tribalism, disease, and natural disasters. To me, the problem of evil, or, as I prefer to put it, the problem of suffering, is one of the key reasons I tend to not believe that a personal creator God exists—at least not a benign one. But Tate's preoccupation with God and morality seems somewhat odd given the fact he and his brother are currently mired in legal trouble relating to being investigated for or charged with human trafficking. And I think this is my first time ever mentioning Andrew Tate on the show. I've probably refrained up until now, partly because of the knowledge he has such a devoted online following. But hey, you know, my opinion's my opinion, and uh, I have a right to voice it. I only covered this particular video because it involves TJ, a.k.a. The Amazing Atheist. And I thought Andrew Tate discussing or mentioning TJ was just so surreal or strange that I want to cover it, and I loved uh, TJ's response. I know TJ is a divisive uh, figure in his own right, or divisive, but I've always uh, liked him. One thing I specifically like about TJ is the way he can be so blunt and crass and irreverent and in-your-face, and yet under all that, you know, the bluster, his takes are usually still pretty damn sound and well thought out. That approach rubs some people the wrong way. They might find it too grating or caustic. Um, But I have a pretty irreverent or inappropriate sense of humor myself, so I kind of dig TJ's approach. And you might be saying, wait, you were bothered by Matt Dillahunty, uh, the way he would yell at callers, but you like TJ because he's kind of in your face. And I think there's a difference between someone responding irreverently to a video, you know, the way TJ would do, and actually listening to someone yell directly at another person. But like I said, you know, there, there's stuff I like about Matt Dillahunty. I've actually been watching more and more of his content lately and been warming up to him, but I just wanted to clarify that before someone accuses me of being hypocritical. But on to the next story. Have you guys ever heard of naked mole rats? I first heard about this story at work, and it grabbed my attention for a couple of reasons. One, because I have an interest in longevity science, and two, because naked mole rats freak me out. If you haven't heard of them, uh, the naked mole rat is a small, hairless-looking rodent, and I say hairless-looking because technically they're mammals, they probably do have some wispy or fine hairs, but they do at least appear to be hairless, hence the name. And they can be rather unsettling to look at, I perhaps somewhat unfairly have tended to think of them as one of the ugliest creatures alive. Their virtually hairless faces and bodies are covered in pink, wrinkly skin, and they have the tiny beady eyes and nearly absent ears of a mole, plus the usual long, curving yellow front teeth of a rodent on full display, unconcealed by any facial fur. Definitely not something most people would want to glance at while eating, although I will say I think I'm starting to warm up to them kind of like with a uh, Matilla Dillahunty. <laughs> and, uh, maybe in part because of the knowledge, you know, that they may possibly be able to help us live longer someday. Sadly, most rodents have pitifully short lifespans. In the wild, a mouse, for instance, might only live on average in between 6 to 18 months. Put that in the life is brutal file. Or a petter indoor mouse might live around a couple of years if they're lucky. The naked mole, rat, on the other hand, can live upwards of 30 or even 40 years. And quickly for context, that Matt Dillahunty reference was a callback to the last segment. If you're watching this on YouTube, this is just an excerpt from the full-length show. But to get back on track, scientists and researchers have long been interested in the naked mole rat because of its impressive lifespan and its resistance to disease. As I alluded earlier, a news story recently broke regarding how scientists managed to successfully transfer a longevity gene from a naked mole rat into a mouse or mice, plural, and it lengthened the mice's median lifespan by about 4.4%, I think. A roughly 4% increase might not sound like much, but when you're talking about lifespan, especially in a creature as short-lived as a mouse, it's probably still significant. But now they're hoping that this will eventually lead to medical advancements or breakthroughs that could increase lifespan and disease resistance in humans. I'll read a bit from this article. And so this is from the official EDU site of uh, Rochester University. And it's entitled Longevity Gene from Naked Mole Rats Extends Lifespan of Mice. And it's dated August 23rd, so not that recent, but not that long ago either. And there's a quote here underneath a uh, lovely image of a naked mole rat. It took us 10 years from the discovery of HMWHA in the naked mole rat to showing that HMWHA improves health in mice, says Rochester biologist Vera, I think it's Gorbanova, but she continues, our next goal is to transfer this benefit to humans. In a groundbreaking endeavor, researchers at the University of Rochester have successfully transferred a longevity gene from naked mole rats to mice, resulting in improved health and an extension of the mouse's lifespan. Naked mole rats, known for their long lifespans and exceptional resistance to age-related diseases, have long captured the attention of the scientific community. By introducing a specific gene responsible for enhanced cellular repair and protection into mice, the Rochester researchers have opened exciting possibilities for unlocking the secrets of aging and extending human lifespan. And here's another quote. Our study provides a proof of principle that unique longevity mechanisms that evolved in long-lived mammalian species can be exported to improve the lifespans of other mammals, says Vera Gorbanova, the Doris Johns Cherry Professor of Biology and Medicine at Rochester, Gorbanova, along with Andrei Selinov, I think it is, a professor of biology, and their colleagues report in a study published in Nature that they successfully transferred a gene responsible for making high molecular weight hyaluronic acid, HMWHA, from a naked mole rat to mice. This led to improved health and an approximate 4.4% increase in median lifespan for the mice. And then there's a section entitled A Unique Mechanism for Cancer Resistance. Naked mole rats are mouse-sized rodents that have exceptional longevity for rodents of their size. They can live up to 41 years, nearly 10 times as long as similar-sized rodents. Unlike many other species, naked mole rats do not often contract diseases, including neurodegeneration, cardiovascular disease, arthritis, and cancer as they age. Gorbanova and Selenov have devoted decades of research to understanding the unique mechanisms that naked mole rats use to protect themselves against aging and diseases. The researchers previously discovered that HMWHA is one mechanism responsible for naked mole rats' unusual resistance to cancer. Compared to mice and humans, naked mole rats have about 10 times more HMWHA in their bodies. When the researchers removed HMWHA from naked mole rat cells, the cells were more likely to form tumors. Gorbanova, Selenov, and their colleagues wanted to see if the positive effects of HMWHA could also be reproduced in other animals. The team genetically modified a mouse model to produce the naked mole rat version of the Hyaluronin Synthesase 2 gene, which is the gene responsible for making a protein that produces HMWHA. While all mammals have the Hyaluron and Synthesase 2 gene, the naked mole rat version seems to be enhanced to drive stronger gene expression. The researchers found that the mice that had the naked mole rat version of the gene had better protection against both spontaneous tumors and chemically induced skin cancer. The mice also had improved overall health and lived longer compared to regular mice. As the mice with the naked mole rat version of the gene aged, they had less inflammation in different parts of their bodies, inflammation being a hallmark of aging, and maintained a healthier gut. And I'll jump down a bit, a fountain of youth for humans, question mark. The findings opened new possibilities for exploring how HMWHA could also be used to improve lifespan and reduce inflammation-related diseases in humans. And here's another quote. It took us 10 years from the discovery of HMWHA in the naked mole rat to showing that HMWHA improves health in mice. Our next goal is to transfer this benefit to humans. And here's another quote by uh, Selinov. The last quote was from Garbanova or Gorbanova. We already have identified molecules that slow down hyaluronin or hyaluronin degradation. In our testing them in preclinical trials, Selenov says, we hope that our findings will provide the first but not the last example of how longevity adaptations from long-lived species can be adapted to benefit human longevity and health. And so as someone who is already interested in longevity science, I find this very interesting. And I do hope that science will make inroads into if not thwarting or defeating age-related disease and maybe even the process of aging itself, that we can at least eventually ease or lessen the deterioration that accompanies age-related disease or age-related diseases. So one last story, and I like to give credit where credit is due. I found this one through Hemet Mehta, a.k.a. The Friendly Atheist. And so NASA's new associate administrator for its Office of Technology, Policy, and Strategy was recently sworn in. Instead of putting her hand on the Bible during her swearing-in ceremony, she chose to put her hand on a copy of Carl Sagan's 1985 book, Contact. You might remember there was a 1997 film adaptation, I think it was 97, starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey, I believe. The story, as you're probably already aware, is about a SETI scientist, played by Jodie Foster in the movie version, establishing first contact with uh, with intelligent alien life. The administrator who was sworn in is named Charity Whedon, and she has a pretty impressive resume that would seem to make her well-suited for working with NASA. She spent more than two decades in the Royal Canadian Air Force. It's weird, um, Because NASA is associated with the the United States federal government, but uh, Canadian, why not? Anyway, uh, she was a senior director of policy at the Satellite Industry Association, and she has a master's in space science. But I thought it was pretty cool that she chose to be sworn in using a Carl Sagan book, and apparently she's not the first to do so. Back in April, Dr. Mackenzie Listrip, I think it is, who is NASA's first-ever female director of their uh, Goddard Space Flight Center, was sworn in with a copy of Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. After being inundated with news stories about religious fundamentalists, you know, worming their way into government and the encroachment on the separation of church and state— it's nice to know there's officials out there, albeit this is NASA, their areas of influence are somewhat limited, but still, you know, who value science and humanism. It almost gives me hope that maybe someday we will reach that kind of scientifically advanced Star Trek-esque utopia that I used to like to dream about, a society or civilization based on both scientific progress and humanist principles. If we don't destroy ourselves first or backslide into ignorance and superstition, which we're still trying to claw our way out of, um, but people choosing to place their hands on Carl Sagan books instead of the Bible jokingly reminds me of that meme where you have shirts and bumper stickers with Sagan's face and a pentagram in the caption, Hail Sagan. And I think part of the joke is that Carl Sagan was such a nice, smiley guy with an almost Mr. Rogers-esque demeanor that his face in a pentagram is kind of absurdly funny. Plus, Hail Sagan just kind of sounds like Hail Satan. Uh, Hail Sagan. Anyway, uh, with that, I think I'll call this episode a wrap. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter or X, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash out and become a supporter for as little as 99 cents a month. Or if you're watching my videos on YouTube, you can use the super thanks uh, option. I can speak and make a, a donation that way. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.